This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and I'd like to kick off with a subject that got a lot of traction on Free For All Friday, and that is the process where doctors are required to report people whose driver's licenses should be suspended in their opinion. Now, according to an investigation by the Toronto Star, the system is open to abuse, and in some cases... There are some doctors filing thousands of these declarations at 36 bucks a pop, while uh, for most of them, they do it, you know, maybe once a year. What do you think? And uh, we'd also like to hear about your experience with this process, because often it's a family thing. Often it's the kids that go to the family doctor and say, I don't think dad can drive anymore. Uh, It is always a wrenching process because it involves a loss of independence. Uh, But uh, what do you think? This this case in the star involved uh, a woman who was suffering with depression. And she told her doctor. And three days later, she got a license suspension in the mail. I mean, there are some psychiatric conditions that would require a license suspension. I do not believe that depression is one of them. Anyway. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome our Zoomer squad. Here in studio, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP. And by phone, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at Carp. Guys, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Hi, Libby. Afternoon, Libby. So, David, what do you make of this? I mean, this process of when do you stop driving is is always a difficult one. It's always a difficult one. And this is kind of a, you, you don't win either way because we've seen news reports of uh, traffic problems with older drivers and second-guessing why didn't somebody come forward when they noticed that mom was not able to keep the car in the right lane or there's an eye problem or an eye-hand problem or there's dementia. Somebody should have said something. And now here we've got people proactively saying something. (laughs) And I'm astonished that there have been 35,000 of these since uh, 2011. So it's a huge number of these reports that are being filed. So I think when you get that many reports, it's easy to find lots of cases where they shouldn't have reported it. And I'm not sure you're ever going to find an ideal medium, Hmm. happy medium. Bill, what's your take? Well, this this is an ongoing issue for CARP that we've been uh, talking about and trying to deal with for, for years. The application is inconsistent. Uh, In Ontario, you have some uh, uh, places where it's mandatory for the medical profession to report, others where it's uh, discretionary. Uh, Often we see... It's mandatory in Ontario. There's some not for uh, for doctors, but not for all 
uh, not for all for, for some of the professions are mandatory. Others are uh, uh, nurse practitioners, optometrists, uh, occupational therapists, uh, and some physicians have discretionary uh, authority uh, to uh, report where uh, under the Highway Traffic Act is mandatory uh, for some uh, functional impairments for physicians and nurse practitioners and optometrists uh, to report. So there is there is not a clear agreement. One of the one of the real problems we've found is that there's no common standards across the country. The Canadian Medical Association has advice for uh, for doctors, but no clear guidelines as there are in other uh, uh, diseases. And it puts the it puts the doctor in a, in a very difficult position. I've had doctors say to me, you know, if I take somebody's driver's license away, they're going to be so angry with me that they're not going to come back to me so I can treat their other illnesses. So it really puts uh, the physician on the horns of a, of a dilemma. Uh, most of the focus is on uh, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, other forms of uh, uh, dementia, but uh, not not always. And uh, and the majority of them uh, always seem to be people over sixty. And the article uh, today uh, uh, said that. So it it's it's not a clear issue at all, and uh, uh, has been concerning people for years. Peter. Yeah, um, I, I can speak from personal experience because I, in my twenties, I had a experience with um, epilepsy and had my license taken away because of it, and that was fine because um, you know, in, in you know, when it was out of when it, w- it wasn't under control, I shouldn't have been on the road driving. But what happened was the um, the emergency room doctor filed the MCR, didn't tell me, um, and. Um, the the problem was okay that's fine you know um file an mcr but but to get my license back i had to you know gather evidence that i i was fine to drive but the doctor um who filed the report was an emergency room doctor who couldn't be traced you know it was just his initials on the form and so it was an awful time me getting my license back trying to sort of build the case that i didn't need it didn't need my license suspended anymore but the original doctor was no longer there to be seen and i had to get another doctor to say that the original doctor's um you know report was no longer valid because of so so it was a very bureaucratic time consuming annoying irritating process and and i think that's what people are worried about especially in the star report where the woman says the doctor who um signed her medical uh, condition report didn't even see her or may have seen her for just minutes and then went and signed it. So, so it, certainly the, it's, it's not abuse, but it's, it's sort of, is this process right? Was that doctor being overzealous? You know, maybe was, it is abuse. Yeah. Were the, were <laughs> the bureaucrats overzealous? Like what, like the, the onus should be, you know, tell it like, like this should be a long sort of careful process. process. It shouldn't just be, a snap decision in the emergency room. Peter, thank you for, for sharing that with us. And, and that's, I mean, how can you even sign something like that with initials? I would have thought that you'd have to put your license number on it and, uh, and everything like that. I mean, that I don't know if that's changed since you were in your 20s, perhaps it a could, few years ago. But. It was just, I, I know, like, the, the burden of proof was, was on me because, because the original doctor was no longer found. You know, or was no longer in the system, or they couldn't. 
anyway, it, it was just a, a burdensome process. And, um, you know, people who get, who get into this bureaucratic maze, uh, you know, I, I can understand why they're frustrated because, you know, taking away the license is one thing, but reestablishing it is, is a huge part of the issue that, um, you know, that needs to be worked out. And is this all the MTO, the Ministry of Transportation, or are there other ministries involved, guys? Do you know? Silence. Yeah, there, it's the Ministry of Transportation. Okay, well, yeah. at least it's mine, one place mine anyway. yeah. that needs a fix. But that's yeah, that seems to be a big problem, and the lines are filling up with people who have their own tales to right. tell. Let's, let's uh, hear them. Let's, let's hear uh, Ray in Oshawa. Hello, Ray. Hello, Libby. How are you? Fine. Fine. Go ahead. We're... Well, I know that some people um, do medically need their, di- their license um, suspended. However, I think there's a lot of abuse. Uh, my granddaughter, when she was 21, became diabetic. And she had this doctor that was dealing with it. She was doing not very much. When she was about 24, my uh, granddaughter got a Dexcom, which monitors her 24-7, which all the information is relayed to the doctor. My granddaughter decided she was going to change doctors. The day that she called the doctor's office to ask them to transfer the, her paperwork to another doctor was the day that the doctor filed a report with the Ministry of Transportation. Wow. She filed, she filed a report saying that my granddaughter had um, numerous low blood sugars. Now, we had to appeal it, cost us to appeal it. It took us, uh, after three weeks, they said that we had a valid case because she had this Dexcom that had it had put on it uh, for three months and stated that she had less than 1% low sugar in three months. The doctor didn't even call her in to uh, tell her about it. She just did it automatically. It took us six weeks before we could get our license back. I had to drive her back and forth to a new job she got. Every morning I'd go up, pick her up, take the baby to the babysitter, take her to work, and then I had to do the process at night. Six weeks, and about three weeks, three weeks mark, we knew that it was going to, we're going to get it back. By the time you do all the paperwork, you submit everything, the three months from Dexcom and everything else like that, it took over six weeks for her to get her license back. That's but the thing is now, six months later, she is the ministry, is on, she's on the ministry's radar. So the ministry, six months, she had to report everything again for something that was done because the doctor was mad that she was um, changing doctors. And it just, that was it. There was no, she couldn't have, she just had to appeal it. Well, the other the other thing you can do is make a complaint to the College of Physicians, but uh, that's usually a waste of time, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, we, we, we actually tried that, and, and they said, well, go through your family doctor. Well, yeah. the other issue was, too, because she had changed doctors, now it showed that she had a new doctor. So if she had not, not had this Dexcom on, which cost $500 a month, it, what diabetics have to pay for their, for their medicine to stay alive is under... And five million dollars month. If she didn't have that, she would have no way of proving that she didn't have low blood sugar. Well, well, um, thank you very much for telling us about that. But um, that sounds ridiculous. Thank you very much, Ray. It is. It's got the system has got now. I don't know what it is. That you have a doctor and you can't seem to change a doctor. Uh, if you've got a family doctor, you can't change a family doctor because you've already got a doctor. And then if you want to change something, there's so many ways that they can get back at you, really, be football. But hopefully, that um, not that I'm saying that DEFCON should be so good, but it did save her, her, her license. But she is on the ministry's radar. 
How okay. long will be on the radar? I have no idea. Okay. Thank you for that, Ray. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Hello, Daryl. Hi there. How are you doing? Fine. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'm 67. About uh, 10, 11 years ago, I uh, was having trouble, you know, stressed out, trouble sleeping and that. I went to a sleep clinic. Uh, they did a test and determined that I had apnea. And which I didn't want to, you know, be wearing a mask for because I had enough trouble sleeping without a mask on. I sleep on my side. And so, uh, the, the actual test I did for the app, you know, I, I couldn't even sleep that evening, you know, or that night. I got maybe an hour, hour and a half sleep. And they said that wasn't enough for the test. So I, I went home. And then the doctor ended up, uh, suspending, they suspended my license for it and which I always maintain it's like you know, it's got nothing to do with that so just before the pandemic I ended up going to a sleep clinic and another test and I was informed that there was this thing called a daytime wakeful maintenance test which were four two-hour segments consecutive where the first 40 minutes you're wired up uh, in a dark room sitting up uh, with no stimulation and you have to stay awake and you're monitored. And then you spend an hour and 20 minutes sitting in their waiting room to go in for the next two hours and four of these. And uh, we determined, you know, then they, the doctor wrote a note saying that uh, my apnea wasn't affecting my ability to stay awake. So I went back and they unsuspended my license but because it had been more than four years since it had been suspended. Now I have to take my tests again. And it just, it, it, it always bothered me that, you know, it's like a person can go drive to a bar, go in and drink all they want. And when they come out, they're held responsible for, you know, their judgment and what they're doing. But for me, I got treated worse than that. I mean, if, if, you know, anybody can have a few rough nights, you know, they can't pay their mortgage, they can't sleep well. And it, it just, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't know that I'm too tired to drive. Um, so I went through this whole thing, and now I have to uh, actually take tests again. Sorry to hear that, Daryl. Thanks for telling us about it. Yeah, so it it really sounds like there are lots of issues with this. Well, it shouldn't come as a surprise that anything that bureaucracy gets their hands on is going to be rigid, is going to be unresponsive. And even when it's needed, because certainly we do want a system of of uh, you know, alerting people that uh, may be at risk or may create risks if they're driving. You want that kind yeah. of vigilance, but if it then lands in the to the machinery that is disorganized, unresponsive, inconsistent, and with no accountability, um, you get this hot mess that we have here. So. Well, you know, and even if you if you take the most charitable view, like the doctor wasn't getting back at that person for leaving yeah. the practice, but the doctor was busy and saw something that, you know, set her off on her radar. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, these days, especially with, uh, you know, there are lots of doctors who are still not seeing patients in person and, you know, they might be looking at a few test values or something and who knows what they're basing their recommendations or their decisions on. And uh, there's, there's no, I mean, usually if there's a, punitive process, it should be laid out pretty clearly. This is how you get your license back if you can't. Could we find, I mean, it'd be worth asking the OMA, um, what are the written instructions to the doctors? If I am a doctor and I see a patient that has depression, that has apnea, that has 
whatever, um, what is the threshold for me to step up and say, um, this should stop that person from driving? I have hay fever, a lifetime of hay fever. I'm sniffling and sneezing during the pollen season. Does that mean... All right, get off the I've road, admitted David. it on the air. Now, <laughs> now they're going to come and get me. But I mean, does that disqualify me from from driving? What if my allergist said he shouldn't be driving anymore? I think there are some conditions that are mandatory that you take someone off the road. Right. If you're, and there are some that are discretionary. discretionary. Bill, Bill, do you know a little more about that? Uh, that is uh, correct. Uh, and the problem that we have in Ontario is that the standards have been developed by bureaucrats. They're not medically uh, based. The, uh, as I said, the Canadian Medical Association, although it has some guidelines for doctors how they should uh, uh, treat it, really uh, hasn't given good uh, good guidelines for everyone to to go by. And because it's a bureaucratic decision, as, as Peter says. It tends to be a very long and involved process that the public doesn't uh, doesn't understand, and uh, then you then you end up with these uh, inconsistencies and uh, a, a, a real inability to um, to reverse decisions that were made. And 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 I would not begin to blame uh, the doctors. Doctors work best when they have guidelines that everybody agrees with. And to this point, uh, the province hasn't gotten its act together to make sure there are uh, understandable, reasonable guidelines that everybody can use. Hmm. Uh, let's go to Vernon Whitby. Hi, Vern. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Go ahead. I'm, I'm great. Um, I, probably something that people are not aware of. If you've had, and this has been the experience with someone that I was looking after, when they went back to reinstate their license, they had to go through a whole rigmarole, plus they had to do a road test, and the cost was over $600 wow. to do this 20-minute road test. It was ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, I, I, I'm sure it's contingent on whatever reason your, your license was, was taken away for six months or whatever, but to, to reinstate it when, the, when a doctor has said, yes, it's fine or whatever, and to have to do this road test at that cost because it's done privately through the ministry— that's ridiculous. I don't well, know if anybody else has come across that, but that was the experience that my friend had. I think one of our other callers uh, alluded to that, but now here's here's yet another example. question because uh, I don't know to what extent that particular backlog has been cleared. But remember, we saw these huge backlogs of mostly young people who couldn't get their licenses because the people who give road tests weren't working. Right. Um, no, this was this is this is. Um, uh, prior to COVID. Well, no, I get that. I get that. But if there is still a backlog of the regular process of getting a road test, I mean, what what, what kind of a backlog is there for this unless the, they give priority to 700 bucks? God forbid you got to get your road test so you can get your license in order to drive down to the passport. Sorry, office. you're fading away on me. Yeah, that David just David here. Go I'm ahead. Saying, God forbid you have to uh, get your road test in order to get your license so that you can drive down to the passport office. <laughs> it's a, that's, perfect storm. Um, I, but I can I can understand I can send I can understand a cost to do your road test, but that kind of a cost to do a, a fifteen no. or twenty minute road test is absolutely ridiculous. And and who knows if it hasn't gone up because of inflation, Vern? Thanks for that. Thank you very much. You take care. You too.
Okay. I, I mean, you know, this, this is kind of mushrooming. Uh, Dale in Toronto. Hello, Dale. Hello, how are you? Fine, go ahead. You're on the air. Yes, I was about uh, 42, about 15 years ago when I was diagnosed with macular degeneration, which leads to, you know, eye loss, vision loss. And I started going to get uh, laser surgery at this doctor's office. And I, I really didn't like the way they did things there. They were very rude and brusque. And it was just, I went there a few times. And then one time they were rude to me and I, I let them know how I felt about it. And a week later, my license was gone. <laughs> they pulled it. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, you know, I understand my vision uh, did get worse. And obviously I shouldn't be driving now. But at the time... It was okay, especially with the treatment. You could still drive. I mean, my mother-in-law is 92, and she still drives with the same disease, you know, because of the treatment. But I, I had a definite feeling it was just out of spite that they did that. Okay, Dale, thanks for your call. Thank you. It's, it's very hard to know the line with certain conditions. I mean, I have read, and I'm not sure what uh, jurisdiction this was in, that that even with the very early stages of cognitive difficulties, you can still drive. Right. But then it's, I don't know, where where are the lines? I mean, obviously, macular degeneration. And uh, one of our former anchors here, he had macular d- degeneration, and he was treated for it. And then there was a certain point where he said, sorry, I can't do this anymore. But um, he, I mean, it, it had to be... Uh, probably a period of a few years when when he did drive in well i'm wondering i'm wondering if they have data on the have have they analyzed the accidents or the crashes that occurred and traced it back on a you know we're in the world of big data now how many of those were due to a medical condition that could have should have would have been reported so they don't even know the other side of that equation yeah i would bet yeah, uh, and the the part about the new, the tests and, and everything being so messed up still because of COVID, um, we'll have to see what happens. I think most of the messed up things are federal government, but, and this is provincial. We do know but, that, that uh, they're still behind on uh, driver's tests. I think a lot of us have younger relatives across Ontario who are, are waiting at, uh, both for their instruction and for their tests because of the uh, lineups. I don't know whether or not uh, older drivers get uh, fast-tracked on it, but it is becoming extremely expensive. And when, you know, the ability, uh, transportation, uh, the ability to uh, move around, the ability to have control of your life by driving your own car is a huge issue for uh, our car members across the uh, the province. And, and uh, what we're hearing today is that uh, this is an issue for all age groups. And just imagine how much more it is for older uh, older Nova Scotians uh, or older Ontarians. And, and Nova Scotians. And Nova Scotians, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's worse here in Nova Scotia because we do not have mandatory at all. So that's, that's a whole uh, other issue. But where it really comes a problem because there are no good guidelines is for families. 
if once you know that your uh, loved one is having trouble driving uh, and you try to get some support from medical people, they're often very low. Remember, we saw from the report that it's only a few of the medical uh, professionals who are reporting a lot of people. Most most don't at all because they're on the horns of the dilemma that I described earlier, and it leaves the families in a in a terrible position, worried about their loved one, thinking they can't drive, but getting no support for having their driving limited. And that's why CARP has always proposed that there should be the same kind of graduated uh, driving uh, ability at older ages as there are younger. For instance, maybe you're not allowed to drive on on four-lane highways or or larger. Maybe you are only allowed to travel with such a distance from your home so you can get the drugstore, the doctor, that sort of thing that you you're 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 controlled, but you still have some freedom to do the things you have to do as uh, as an older uh, person. And there's been no interest in looking at that at all as far as we have seen, even though we've been proposing it for at least the last 10 years. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take one very quick call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Okay. uh, Thanks, Gabby. Yeah, I just came in partway through there. Yeah, I've experienced almost the same thing. I'm very fortunate. I have a wonderful lady doctor, and she told me, Ron, um, I'm obligated by law. This was before the investigation even started over a year ago. And she said, I'm obligated by law to tell them if there's anything I think, right? Because I had bypass surgery in January of 2020. And she said, Ron, you know, um, and it, you've got to be careful, you know, how you phrase some of your words. It was even like that. So um, and what is what this whole thing is going to do? Quebec is different. It's the, the doctor's discretion, all right, as to whether they tell the ministry or not. In Ontario, it's mandatory, and all it's doing is it's scaring a lot of senior citizens from driving. And they won't even tell the doctor if there's a problem, will they? Very interesting, right. Ron. I've uh, got to let you go on that note. Uh, and the, the lines are still filled up. So uh, what I can see from this is that we have to continue with this topic and sure. people out there, we will be revisiting it soon enough. Uh, we'll try to get, we'll also try to get some clarity. Uh, I, I'm not holding out big hope to get anybody from the Ministry of Transportation. Also, we don't even have a minister right at the moment. Uh, but um, we are definitely going to be following up on this. And thank you so much for all your really interesting input today, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks. Okay. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Fahad Razak, and uh, protocols are gone, and the situation with COVID is different. So uh, I don't know about you, but I need a refresher what to do, what not to do, and, and what the deal is when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As of today, unvaccinated Canadians will be allowed on planes and trains. Mask mandates have ended in most settings. 
anecdotally, I've got to tell you, a lot of people I know are getting COVID and the protocols have changed in terms of what is an exposure, when do you isolate, and when do you test. So if you have questions, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Forty, And I have questions. So now I am joined by Dr. Fahad Razak, the scientific director of the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Hi, doctor. Hi, good to be back. Uh, Thank you for coming on. So we have uh, unvaccinated people, presumably in close proximity and airports and train stations. Uh, What do you figure is going to happen? Well, um, As you know, we have uh, wastewater monitoring that's been in place across the province uh, for some time now, which is a really important signal for us about whether cases are going up and down. And right now, they're clearly going up. So we hit a low point uh, a few weeks ago, and they've clearly been steadily rising overall in the province and in every single region of the province. And so what you said is right. I think all of us individually know lots of people who have been infected recently. Um, You know, that includes people like, for example, even our prime minister in the last couple of weeks. And the number of infections are clearly going up. So I think the question is, what do you do to safely continue with all the things that are important to us while you know that rates are going up again? Well, and, you know, I've got to say that when it comes to travel, because I know, I mean, the totally anecdotal and unscientific. So let's say, excuse me, I I know 10 people who have traveled recently, and these are people with third and often fourth shots on board. And I would say seven or eight of them came back with COVID. Yeah, many, uh, many people I know have a similar story. In fact, um, I even know of examples, for example, of clinicians from hospitals who were at a medical conference um, and came back and a large number of them are positive. And so, especially if you're going into an international setting, there are exposures that are happening in the process of traveling and the fact that many countries, especially the U.S., have much laxer regulation than we do. And so you potentially are going into a high-risk environment. Okay, so what is considered an exposure now? So an exposure remains being in close proximity of someone who has known uh, has has known active disease or has active symptoms of disease. Um, but right now, based on our protocols in Ontario, you don't have to go into any kind of isolation period unless you yourself are positive. And if you're positive, the the recommendation is still for five days from the time that your symptoms started, and that your symptoms are clearly improving at the end of that five day cycle. So for the uh, final 24 to 48 hours that your symptoms are improving. That's the guidance. And I would still say that holds for most people. Now, if you're unvaccinated, the period of time that we're suggesting is still longer. It's more in the 10-day cycle. Okay. Uh, what is uh, a close proximity? I mean, I know people who say, oh my God, I had a five-minute conversation at six feet with somebody who tested positive that day. Is that an exposure? That would be considered an exposure, but right now that doesn't require you to take any additional steps unless you yourself are feeling unwell. So if you yourself are feeling unwell, you should take additional steps. And I would say if you're potentially in a high-risk situation, so let's say that you're living with someone who's immunocompromised, um, who's elderly, someone who's really high risk, then of course, please take additional steps. But by and large, given the number of infections that are circulating right now, just by exposure, 
you yourself, if you're completely symptom-free, and especially if you're vaccinated, because we know that there's still additional protection, then you don't have to take additional steps. What about testing? When do you test? If you think you've been exposed, do you test, or do you only test if you have symptoms? If you've been exposed and you're going into a situation where your infectivity could put others at risk, then I would still suggest testing. So, so for example, let's say you're exposed at work and that weekend you'll be visiting with family, which includes someone who's elderly or includes children who are younger than age five and unvaccinated. It would be very reasonable to do a test before meeting up with them, and that would be the rapid test. If you're getting together in a setting with a lot of people, many are still saying, please do a rapid test on the day of, just to reduce the chance that someone is coming in is infectious. So there's not hard and fast rules around this, but I think it's pretty reasonable to do if you want to keep those around you safe. And remember, these tests are still freely provided in Ontario. Well, that's uh, that's that's going to be one of my next questions. But if uh, if you're not going into a high risk setting, if you think you've been exposed and say, uh, uh, should you uh, test before you go back to work? I, I think it's a reasonable thing to do um, if, if you want to keep your coworkers safe and keep those around you safe. We want to reduce transmission as much as possible because transmission can still be very, very disruptive to individuals. Some people have really mild symptoms, but others don't. It can be really disruptive to your workplace if a lot of people are sick together, so imagine you bring it in. And then, of course, we still have the risk of the few unlucky individuals having severe disease or things like long COVID developing. So to me, it makes sense to reduce transmission as much as you can. Now, um, I took a couple of tests recently and I did swab my throat as well as my nose. I talked to some people I know. They said they swab their cheeks in addition to their nose. So what do you recommend? We're, we're seeing a combination of nose and cheeks based on the fact that um, it seems to have better accuracy at detecting disease. Um, now, look, I think we have to accept that these tests are imperfect. So, for example, let's say you've had an exposure and you have symptoms. So the standard respiratory symptoms, cold, cough, fever, and your test is negative. I think you have to operate under the assumption that you could still have it because these tests are far from perfect. And we know that some people with active disease, especially if you've been vaccinated, the test may come back negative. And I'll, and I'll give you my personal example for that. Um, my children picked it up at school. They brought it home. We developed, my wife and I developed symptoms right, uh, right within the exposure period. So within a week of our, of our kids coming home, my test remained negative the entire time. And I tested myself you know, five or six times during that period, and it never became positive, I'm almost certain that I had it. Uh, on the other hand, it's allergy season, right? Absolutely, <laughs> lot... and, there's, and there's other viruses circulating. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, if, if it's normal for you, I mean, uh, <laughs> I've got allergy symptoms 365 days a year. It doesn't, you know, alarm me necessarily. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So look, th- we're getting into some areas which are very difficult for decision making because of the reasons that you said. So uh, for me, this was clearly something different than my normal. It was, it was a cough and fever and things like that, which maybe knew I had something different. But for many people, there's going to be an overlap with seasonal allergies. Uh, there's other viruses floating around now. And so this becomes very difficult, but the tests are not perfect. And so I think it's important for people to take the message that if you have symptoms that are consistent with this and you have other things like an exposure that would make you wonder, uh, you can't rely on a negative test to say that it isn't COVID. 
And uh, again, I'm, uh, I, I got the throat thing, the, that advice from Dr. Uni, your predecessor. So when did it uh, change to cheek? We, we changed uh, so that the throat, so the, the swabbing of um, the throat and the inside of your cheek and is, is basically the idea that the virus can set up in your mouth and the back of your throat. And so this idea that you could increase by moving beyond just the nose has been something that we kind of introduced over the last, you know, six to 12 months. Now, still throat is more typical than cheek. It's just that if someone wanted to additionally swab their cheek, that would be reasonable to do as part of the get that part of your body completely tested. Just a minute, throat, cheek, and nose? Say it again. Throat, cheek, and nose? Throat, cheek, and nose would be very reasonable to do. Throat (laughs) and nose would be the most crucial. So throat meaning the back and the top soft part. It's not yeah. fun. It's not fun. And you don't have to go, you're not going typically as deep in as you would have with the PCR test because, you know, it's hard to do that on yourself. So you're trying to get as many surfaces as possible to try and pick up any of that virus that's floating around. Now, you mentioned the tests being available and free. My understanding is that's ending July 1st. Am I right? So they are talking about ending the availability. There's many of those tests still floating around. So it would be reasonable, I think, again, to have some excess ones at home that you can use throughout the summer, especially if cases are starting to rise. And of course, you know, the hope is, is that the government can look at signals like the wastewater or other things and make a decision about whether they want to extend the period that these cuts are available. I, I have not seen an announcement yet, but they have shown in the past that if the signals change, they will reconsider the timeline. Have, have you, uh, as part of the directorate, suggested to them? Because, uh, you know, I'm thinking that if that, if and when that expires, if you haven't stockpiled some, uh, I don't think people who are having trouble paying for their groceries are going to spring. It's, it's about 25 bucks a test, and you've got to test multiple times, really. Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really good question. We have not had that direct conversation, but hopefully something to discuss in the in the next one to two weeks. And I and I agree with you that these tests are uh, very expensive if you have to pay for them yourself. And so you're going to see people stop using them if it's an out-of-pocket expense. Okay. Well, thank you for all that information. Um, boy, this is, uh, you know, it keeps changing and, and we really appreciate it. Dr. Fahad Razak. Great to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. We're taking a quick break. And on the other side of it, Patrick Brown, leadership candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now we continue our series of interviews with candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. I'd like to welcome Patrick Brown. Of course, we have talked to him many times as Brampton mayor and as the leader of the Ontario PCs before that. Good to talk to you, Patrick. Thanks so much for being with us. It would be always great to be on your show. So you've had some uh, good news and some bad news lately. Uh, you're saying that you've signed up about 150,000 new members. Uh, bad news, you had a couple of defections of uh, caucus members who endorse you, and your your caucus co-chair is now going off on a campaign of her own, Michelle Rempel-Gardner. Uh, so what's your, uh, how, do you, how do you process all of that? Well, first of all, let me say I am very encouraged by the record-setting membership hall that we had. 
When Aaron O'Toole was successfully elected leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, he had signed up 20,000 new members. When Andrew Scheer won that leadership, he signed up 9,000. So 150,000 is an astonishing um, number to sign up, and it shows how I can broaden the reach of the party. In terms of our co-chair's decision to run for the Alberta Conservative leadership, um, let me say I'm happy for her. I, I think it speaks well of my supporters that they are being courted for um, higher positions. And in Michelle's case, she remains a supporter. Michelle Rempel, she remains a supporter of of my of my candidacy for the federal conservative leadership. And uh, I wish her well as she pursues uh, the goal of being premier of Alberta. Uh, two others have defected and are now supporting Pierre Poilievre, who is considered to be the front runner and who uh, b- between the two of you, yours, there's a lot of mudslinging. You know, I think the tone of the campaign was certainly set by uh, by the Polyev campaign. Um, when I launched my campaign, when Jean Charest launched his campaign, uh, Pierre Polyev launched uh, attack ads. The same day we were simply announcing our intention to run, they, they ran attack ad videos against us. And um, that shouldn't be the way it is in a, in a leadership. Uh, I feel that sometimes Pierre spends more time attacking fellow conservatives than he does focusing on why he believes he'd be better than Justin Trudeau. And, you know, I I think there's a lot of other candidates that feel the same way, that uh, rather than attacking each other, um, you know, we should really define how we do things differently in Ottawa. Um, Yeah, he says he has over 300,000 people signed up. Uh, A a lot of people believe he has it sewn up, and um, he's tapped into something, a populist thing, a lot of a generalized, you know, anger. Uh, You know, what about that? So if if Pierre was as confident as he says he is, I don't think you'd see him using the scorched-earth approach that he is to my candidacy or to Jean Charest's candidacy certainly doesn't leave the impression of a confident um, front runner. But yes, you know, he is he is appealing to um, elements um, in the country where he's trying to sell memberships to um, that I believe would be an electoral albatross for the party. You know, you look at the membership drive he did in the cryptocurrency community. He made that his signature economic policy to combat inflation, and has turned out to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, when he made his announcement, um, Bitcoin has gone down 60, 60%. Um, and so I think it's important for leaders aspiring to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada to, to not take positions that will hobble the party's ability to be competitive in 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 the next election. And so, you know, I, I, do, I do see concerns. Another example would be when he wanted to uh, ban vaccines for for even polio and and measles, um, where there's been more of a history of of the use of vaccines. It's one thing to think the government went too far in their mandates, but when you get into trying to combat children from having vaccines for 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 polio and measles, it, it gets to, to to the verge of being ludicrous. Well, the mandatory vaccines. Um... Yeah. Um, he's accused your campaign of paying, uh, reimbursing people for memberships. Yeah. And, you know, that was the same day that there was all the stories on the cryptocurrency crash. I think that was very clear. It was a distraction tactic. Listen, my campaign has never reimbursed um, memberships. We abide by um, the, the the party rules. And, um, you know, it is 
communications 101 when you don't want to talk about a a bad story you you, you try to um divert the attention and the same day as the cryptocurrency a crash um you know pierre Pauli was out making allegations against others um you know on to a more generalized problem with conservative leaderships i mean there seems to be uh this Right-left divide, social conservatives have a very large say in who the leader is. Uh, There are people who say that they cannot be elected. There are some people like Leslie Lewis, I just talked to her last week, and she wasn't clear on whether she would reopen the abortion debate, though she told me some of her best friends are pro-choice. So there are all these issues. uh, And the result often seems to be that, you know, the general public doesn't really know what the party stands for. And there's a lot of infighting. Yeah, listen, leadership campaigns are not for the faint of heart. They are um, tough campaigns. And whoever wins this leadership will certainly have been uh, tested through the arduous nature of the campaign. I think it's important as conservatives to look at issues that bind us together. Um, and, you know, I look at Leslie Lewis and where I I don't agree with her on revisiting um, the abortion debate, I would say she has brought um, forward some really um, good public policy when it comes to making adoptions easier in Canada. Um, there's lots of issues that unite conservatives, and that's what we need to focus on, whether it's energy sovereignty and actually build, building pipelines so we can be wealth generators for our own country, a justice system that protects the rights of victims as much as it does criminals, about cleaning up the financial chaos in Ottawa, where we are paying $2 billion a month in interest payments. Libby, when a child is born today in Canada, the reason they're crying at the hospital is they find out they owe $31,000. There are issues that unite conservatives, and increasingly we need to focus on the issues that bring the broad spectrum of conservatives together. Yeah, you know, I said right-left divide, but with this sort of populism thing, it's something else. I don't know. Uh, And there are people who, as I said, believe that by the numbers that we see at those Poilievre um, rallies and the numbers that he says he signed up, that that it's a done deal. Um, What do you say to those people? Well, listen, I think that's the impression that that Poilievre is trying to say to 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 the media. It's what they're trying to spin. Um, but if that was the case, they wouldn't be investing so much time into attacks um, on their adversaries. And so usually when you're taking those scorched-earth approaches, those scorched-earth attacks, it speaks to a campaign that's very nervous and lacks confidence. And so and there's something happening out there on the ground in the Conservative Party, and I believe that my campaign has been able to engage such a, a, a huge number of new party members that it makes the poly of campaign very nervous. You know, we signed up over 10,000 new members in Montreal. We signed up record numbers in Vancouver, across Ontario and Halifax. I, mean, I went up to Yellowknife and Whitehorse and signed up more new members than they've ever seen in the territories. And so there has been an ability for us to grow the party in a manner that we've not seen in recent conservative leaderships. Uh, You're saying you have said that if he wins, you will not be involved. You won't run. You won't serve federally, right? Yeah. Well, I'd rephrase that a little bit. I, I, listen, I'm a lifelong conservative. I'm going to continue to support the conservatives. um, But I, do I believe that Pierre Polyev could win seats in the GTA? No, I don't. Um, I believe that the policy positions that he has taken 
on everything from cryptocurrency to Islamophobia and 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 Bill 21 and religious freedom. Um, I believe he's taken policy positions that would not resonate in the GTA. And for that reason, even if I have a high standing as as mayor of Brampton, I, I don't believe myself or anyone could win a seat in the GTA under a poly-of-led party. It would just be too extreme and, and, and too divisive. And I guess sometimes the interviews, you're not supposed to be so candid and honest and blunt. But, you know, I was asked on a CBC interview if I thought, you know, um, I could win a seat in, in the GTA under, under a poly-of-led government and, or a party. And I said, no, I, I just I don't think it's practical. Uh, so it's, 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 you couldn't win the seat as opposed to, uh, just not wanting to, uh, uh, work with him. Um, so speaking of being mayor of Brampton, you have to make a decision whether you're running again for that job before this leadership vote is decided. So how do you manage that? Well, I think we're going to have a good sense of where all the numbers are um, in, in August before decisions like that need to be made. What I would say is if you know, I'm successful federally, of course, I, I'm going to be running federally and not presenting again as, as mayor. Um, if Jean Charest was successful or Leslin Lewis or Roman Rabber or Scott Aitchinson, you know, they're all candidates that I could get behind and run federally. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just think it would be a waste of time and effort under Paul Yev, given the positions he has taken that have been very much inconsistent with the multicultural mosaic of the GTA that I'm proud to represent. So if it's anyone but Poilievre, you will not run again in Brampton and run federally? Is that, am I reading that right? Yes. I, I think all the other candidates have the capacity to build a winning coalition in suburban Canada. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that is interesting. Uh, we have uh, just about a, a minute or so left. So um, what what do you do now? You have all these members signed up. I guess you have to make sure they vote. Yeah, it's about getting uh, everyone we signed up uh, out to vote, uh, collecting um, collecting everyone that uh, signed up to, to make sure that their ballots are submitted or, or we can submit them for them to to Ottawa. And it's about building the party that I believe we have the capacity to do, that it's, it doesn't matter who you love, where you're born, the color of your skin, what God you worship, we're going to build a big tent conservative party that can serve all Canadians and fight for all Canadians. Okay, anything else you want to leave us with? If you want to learn more about the campaign, uh, we've got a website, uh, fighterleaderwinner.ca, and uh, look forward to meeting uh, conservatives across the country this summer. Okay, Patrick Brown, let's talk again soon, and thanks very much for this. My pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.